Amen. I'm thankful. I don't often testify about my wife, but I'm thankful that um, in times like today, my wife has always been, our whole marriage has been, whatever you think we need to give, let's give. And I'm, that's a blessing. If you got a spouse that was cringing today or a future spouse that was cringing today, that's the wrong one. (laughs) Sorry if you're married. I mean, you're in it now, but you got the wrong one. Uh, We're just a, we're a blessed people. And I believe that we should bless people. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles um, to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, I've got a few verses I want to read. They're all going to be very familiar passages of Scripture. But I want you to think about something as we read these Scriptures. I've got something I'm going to say that may not sit right perfectly uh, with you the first line, but I really, it's not just to catch your attention, although I hope it does. It really isn't the intention of what I'm, what I'm going to tell you right here, but I believe there's a truth that the Lord's really been working in my heart in the last few weeks that I want to give to you, and that is this. Jesus is not like God. Jesus Christ is not like God, but rather God is like Christ. Now, this isn't going to sit super wrong with most of you because y'all have grown up understanding a lot of things that we understand. But still, I believe that the Lord would have us to see something that even in a, maybe in, in a passages that we've read many times and in, in, a, um, in a topic that we might think we understand, I still see some fresh things for me, and so I hope they'll be fresh for you. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 is the first place we want to be. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I want you to look over in the book of Colossians. We're just going to, like I said, we're going to reread some verses that you all know very well. But I want to I cover them because I, I want to get it fresh in your mind again. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. Let's start in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Look at verse 19. For it pleased, and the Father is in parentheses because it's not in the original text, the fullness of to dwell in him. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of deity bodily. And then I also want to remind you of John chapter 10 and verse 30, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, I want to repeat what I said a minute ago because I do want you to think on this. I believe that we have to shift, even though we, we preach the manifestation of God in Christ, I think sometimes our minds, maybe because of how we've been raised, um, 
what, what, what theological perspectives we've come from. I think sometimes we can still carry baggage. Anybody discover you still carry baggage from some of the stuff, the Baptist stuff you grew up believing or the uh, Trinitarian Pentecostal stuff you grew up believing or whatever else, you know, that there's some baggage still, some thought process, the way we view God. But I want you to think about this, write it down and think about it this week. And that is that Jesus Christ is not like God, but rather God is Christ-like. Let me say it another way. Jesus came to this earth not to reveal to us that he was like God, but that God was like himself. All of those verses we just read speak of the unity of Father and Son and speak of the fullness that dwelled in Christ. What does fullness mean? It means all. Pastor was looking at this a, a few weeks ago about all things. How many remember him preaching about all things? Well, the fullness is the pleroma, the, the filling out everything there is to be known of God is in Christ. But I think that we, many people misunderstand what God is because they try to understand him in his obscurity. I think a lot of people are trying to reach God and know him in his transcendence. These are a couple of words that we may not think about all the time, but to transcend means to have no boundary. It means to be limitless. He transcends all time. He's eternal. He transcends all space. There is nothing that can confine him. And oftentimes, I think people misunderstand who God is because we try to know him there. Oh, this, this idea of the Trinity holds up this idea that there is a God who is transcendent that is separate from the God who is imminent. And what does imminent mean? It means to be somewhere. It means to be present. And the problem is, does anybody ever, has anybody ever ventured in your thoughts to think about eternity? Has anybody thought about that? It messes up my mind. Because in eternity, there is no time. We think, my natural, now maybe you don't, but my natural thought of eternity is everything from here forward. Like, eternal life, well, it's from here forward. But eternity has no time. Man has time. God doesn't have time. God set time up for man to live in, but God does not live by time. God does not exist by time. We know of him as being eternal. When I start trying to think about eternity, my mind gets messed up. And my point in that is, if we try to know God there, we're going to get messed up about how we see God. Because God didn't intend for, him, for him to, himself to be known there. He didn't intend for us to try to approach him in eternal transcendence. Understanding the inability for us to even go there. So God didn't intend for us to reach him in this way. I think a lot of people try to climb to the heights of the heavens to find who God is and they seek him where he, they cannot go and therefore try to find him where he cannot be found. I was thinking about this a little bit and I don't want to spend a lot of time here. 
I'm not going to intend to keep you super long, but to give you things to think about this week. But I begin to think about Babel and an issue with Babel is that they said, let us come together and let's build a tower so that we can reach into the heavens so that we can reach God. That's what they said. And God said, this isn't going to work. So he dispersed the languages and made them unable to communicate. The problem is, even if you could get to the heavens, you can't know God there. And so we misunderstand a lot of things about him. They try to seek him in his omnipotence. They try to find him everywhere at once, but I can only be here. And so this, this problem arises that we don't think like God. We do not understand like God. We do not comprehend like God. And so many misunderstand Jesus because they too often ask, how is Christ like God? I think so much of has anybody heard the term Christology? Anybody know that term? Okay, it's a frequent term in theology. And what it means, the ology means the study, more or less. But Christology means how you see God, how you see Jesus Christ, what you see him as. Everybody, every denomination, and pretty much every person in general is going to have some, maybe you can't even express it, but you're going to have some Christological view how you believe Jesus to be, what you believe he was. And so much of what we hear today in Baptist churches and in Pentecostal churches is this effort to try to see how Jesus is like God. Even an effort to prove that Jesus maybe is God by the things he does or has done. But I want you to rearrange how you think Because I don't want you to look and say, how is Jesus like God? How can can we see these things that Jesus did and say, well, that's just like God? Because we don't know God there. I want you to switch it around and I want you to say, when I see Jesus, I am seeing what God is. Everything. Everything that Jesus is, is exactly what God is. So it's not how is Jesus like God, but how is it that God is seen in Christ? When pastor's talking about we need to understand what the church is supposed to look like, well, I think it starts with understanding who Jesus is. It it starts with understanding, because if he's the head of the church, how can the church look like what it's supposed to look like if we get the head wrong? So we've got to see Jesus for who he is. Let's not look to Jesus and say, well, man, we might see a reflection of who God is, but we should look at Christ and say, when I see Jesus, exactly what Jesus was is exactly what God is. And even though you believe that, even though most of you would, are, are sitting here nodding your head and saying amen, it still is confused in our brains in how we see this. I think the very question of how is Christ like God is flawed and wrong. We should not ask that question, but rather realize that in Jesus Christ, we see exactly what God is. Jesus is the full disclosure of what God is. When you all bought houses when you came here, 
We have a disclosure packet. When you all sold your houses, you had to go through and write down disclosures, things that you knew about the property or about the house. And when you're looking, you're hoping that they are honest and they're telling you things they knew. Jesus is the full disclosure of God. He didn't just come to talk about what God was. Do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't just show up so that he could reveal to us the things that God wanted to say. He's not a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. He is the rabbi, but he's not just a teacher. He's not a prophet. He's not just a healer. He's not just another one of the, uh, God's men. But he is the fullness of everything that God is revealed to man. And if we want to know God, then we've got to know him as he revealed himself in Christ. Everything that we would define of God Really, even those words I used before about being transcendent and being omnipotent, we can't even comprehend that. But what we can know of God is an eminent God that was here and that revealed himself. To wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How do we see the reconciliation of God in Christ? How do we see what God thinks about redemption? How do we see what God thinks about salvation? How do we see what God thinks about judgment? How do all of that, every single bit of it, we see in the life of Christ? He walked out the disclosure and revealed what and who God is. And we can only really ever know God in knowing Jesus because he cannot even be known in any other way. Impossible to know him. I want to look at a popular phrase that I believe has wreaked havoc on the church. Now, this is beautiful because I did not know what dad was preaching and he started in on this today. God is love. We've all heard that phrase. God is love. When we say God is love, we can know what this means only when we look at Christ. Do you see the problem where I said it's not how uh, that Jesus is God-like, but it is that God is Jesus-like. Here's the problem. When we try to understand the love of God separate from Christ, from, and not just the, you know, the, the, maybe the act of what we deem as love, but the whole life of Christ, we will misunderstand what love means. That's the issue. This love is not measured or definable in any other way, but when we look at Christ, we can define what God is love means. Because the scripture says that God is love. But Jesus is God. So therefore, Jesus is love. And whatever Jesus did is the definition of what God is love means. You following my logic here? So, it is never shoveling your neighbor's driveway. 
That's not love. I don't intend this to be picking at anybody or, or trying to be silly, but when we say God is love, it will never mean shoveling your neighbor's driveway. It will never mean using people's preferred pronouns. It will never mean getting vaccinated. It can't mean those things. You know why? Because Jesus never did those things. And so if we're going to understand God is love, we have to understand God in Christ. And in understanding God in Christ, then we can know what love is. It is literally not even about the single actions that Jesus did. I'm not talking about we can go to to specific events and say, oh, look, this is the love of God. Now, we know the cross. It says, you know, that, that, that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Clearly, God's, the scripture's saying there that God showed his love toward us. It was an expression of his love. But when we say God is love, we have to look at the whole spectrum then of everything Jesus is and put it together and say, this then is what love means. The whole. Not the single event. Not the woman caught in adultery. Because if you get the woman caught in adultery, then you leave with a God who loves regardless of any behavioral. He doesn't require anything from you, and he's only there to judge people who would try to hold somebody accountable. Why? Because you only have one event. You only have one narrative. But when we look at this, this is not about a single action, but the whole life of Christ, the reason he came, the purpose for which he died. God is love. That phrase is a 33-year definition spelled out by everything Jesus did. If you're going to see the love of God, you're going to see it in the entirety of Jesus's life. You're going to see exactly, see, you understand what I'm saying? We can sit here and argue about what love means, or we can look at Jesus and say, this is what God is. I can try to know him there, or I can look at him very clearly and say, this is what God wants me to know of him. This is who he is. It takes all the question out of it. It leaves all the, all the you know, reflection and ability to surmise things and conjecture. And it removes it all. And it says simply, when I find Christ, I find God. And I can define what God is based upon what Jesus is because he is the fullness of God. I'm not trying to prove that Jesus is like God. I'm trying to understand God when I see Christ. Because this is God's good pleasure. This is God's intention. This is God's eudokia. All of the fullness dwelled in him. The 33-year life that we believe. And it, you know, I don't want to necessarily argue over what was 33 or 40, or, you know, whatever. somebody. But the wholeness of his life, the... What we have written of him is the expression. Do we believe that God is big enough to leave for us important things about who Jesus was? Yes. John said if we wrote all that Jesus did, 
we could not have enough books in the world to contain it. But what is there is written so that we can know God in Christ. That's what's left for us. This 33-year definition spelled out by everything he was. All of the fullness. It's not a definition that can be found in one word or one event. But is one that is understood in the summation of all that Jesus is. If we can see that God is showing us who he is when we see Christ, then we can begin to know what God's love is. So when we look at Jesus, we see that God is healing. And God is delivering. And God is rebuking. And God is turning over tables. And God is serving. And God is reaching out to humanity. And God is cursing unfruitful trees. And when you add it all up, you can begin to understand God is love. You cannot remove from the equation certain instances that you do not like. If you are hyper-grace, you cannot remove from the equation that Jesus went in and kicked over tables and whipped people out of the temple because you don't like it because it doesn't fit the narrative. You can't remove it. Because all that Jesus is, is what love is. We don't define love, then define God by love, then define Jesus by how he is like God in love. No. The Pharisees had, had an answer for sin. Pretty much their one answer for sin was condemnation. That was the answer. But Jesus had another answer, and it is called redemption. Only condemnation in the law. But Jesus brings redemption. The overall picture we see when we see God in Christ is God's redeeming love. But don't reduce, think about this this week. I'm trying to give you some things to, to go home and ponder. Don't reduce God's redeeming love just to those events that you believe reflect God's redeeming love. Understand that is encompassed in all that God did in Christ. Both the forgiving and the rebuking. God's picture of redeeming love must include two passages. John 9. They're both found in the book of John. But I want to read these two passages to you because God, the picture of God's redeeming love must include both. John chapter 9 and verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, and that they which see might be Sorry, that they which see not might see, and that they which might see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these, uh, heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. For judgment, I am coming to this world. Now I want you to look at John chapter 12 
and verse 47. John chapter 12 and verse 47. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, that same shall judge him in the last day. The picture of God's redeeming love must include both John 9 and John 12. The issue that we face is that we will tend to believe one of the two, but not understand that they do not conflict, but they show us the wholeness, the fullness of who God is. Both judgment and mercy in the same breath. Like dad said today, I thought he was going to start preaching. And I thought, well, okay, we're going to hear it twice today. But that God's, God's judgment cannot be removed from the equation because we believe that God is love. Because I'm telling you tonight that God is love is also including God's judgment. Understanding what God means by love includes both John 9 and John 12. They do not conflict. We see in John 9 a blind man who is healed. Jesus condemns the Pharisees standing near because by refusing to see what God was doing in Christ, they were blinding themselves and their sin remained because they rejected him. In John 12, we see that Jesus says, I did not come to this earth for the purpose of passing eternal judgment on people. I came in order to save them. I came because of my redeeming love. These are not conflicting statements. In fact, he goes on to say in John 12, I'll tell you what will judge you. Your very words that you have spoken against me are going to stand as your judgment. But what is God's purpose? Jesus' purpose in being here is not so that God would show his judgment. Jesus' purpose in being here is so that we can see God's redeeming love. This is so important for us. When I say that Jesus didn't come to condemn He is saying, I did not come to reveal to you, to make, I didn't come to bring full disclosure of God's wrath. I didn't come to exegete, which is the word in the Greek that means to to disclose and to to reveal. When we talk about exegesis, we'll go through a a, a chapter and you'll kind of break it down and, and bring all the context and all that stuff in. His point is, I did not come to reveal God's wrath. I came to show you God's love. That does not mean that God's wrath is done. That does not mean that judgment ceases to exist. What it means is the purpose of God was not to show men how much he hated them. The purpose of God in Christ was for God to show us how much he loved us. When we see God in Christ, we can understand this. God is love, but has wrath. Not God is wrath, but has love. 
Do you know where this thought abides? The vengeful God. It abides in the Trinity. It abides in an Old Testament where you have a father who is mad and looks for a son to crucify in order to appease and satisfy his anger. That's the only place it exists. It doesn't exist in the reality of God's love. It doesn't exist in actually what God is because what God is showing us on that cross, remember I've said this many times, is not wrath. God's work on the cross is showing us the greatest act of love toward man ever. The only place that this exists where God is wrath but has love is in the Trinity. It's the only place that exists. In the unity of God, God is love, but there is judgment. And this is God's purpose. If we try to understand from what we know about God, then we get in a mess. An old vengeful father, a distant father, a father who cannot look on sin, the wrath on the cross, a God untouched and unsoiled by humanity, a three-personed God. But if we understand God through what we can know in Christ Jesus, what we can see, we get a high priest touched with humanity, a mighty God purposefully reaching out to wicked man, God uh, shedding his own blood in order to show us his great love, the incarnate son and the everlasting father in the same person. When we see God in Christ, when we see that God is like Christ, we get all of those things. I want to close with this. John 1, 18, a very familiar passage of scripture. No man has seen God at any time. Really, it says nothing has seen God at any time. But the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, this one has declared him. This one has made him known. This is exactly what John is trying to explain in chapter 1. It is not just simply that God has not been seen with your eyes. That's not all he's trying to say. Hey, guess what, guys? You've never seen God before. That's not all John is trying to make known. But that he has never been known in the fullness of who he is. That's what John's trying to say. That's why the end of the verse is there. If not, he would have and said, I'm running out of battery. He would have just stopped and said, hey, guys, listen, nobody's ever seen God. But he goes on to say, but the only begotten has disclosed him. He exegetes the father. He makes fully known. He explains in a way that clarifies what is utmost and important. The nature of God is revealed to us in Christ. He is not like God. God is like him. And when we see Jesus, we are staring at God. That's what I'm trying to tell you tonight. In Jesus, we see God reaching out to man in our lost, broken, and sinful state. The very first thing that we see about God in Christ is that he is reaching out to us. It is his good pleasure. It's his intention. It's his grace. I want to read this quote by Frank Stagg. 
professor at Louisville Baptist Seminary, but dad and I have really enjoyed reading some of his stuff. And this is a, a beautiful quote. The first step is always taken by God, not by man. God awakens man by and to his own presence and draws man to himself. This is the biblical doctrine of election. Not the choice of one man instead of another man, but God's choice of man instead of man's choice of God. When we see God is like Jesus, we see a God that is reaching out to humanity when humanity cannot reach out to him. When you want to know all that God is, I want you to look and we think of God in this distance. We think of God as unapproachable. We think of Jesus and the substitutionary sacrifice and all of those things. But tonight, as you go home and as you think about this this week, I want you to think about this. Do not seek to try to figure out how Jesus is like God. But as you read the words of Christ, understand that it is God in Christ revealing who he actually is. Not a mirror, not an image, not an icon, not a type, but all that God is, we find in Jesus Christ. Pastor, why don't you come tonight?